Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and this is Money Talks. A rather different and much more somber start to the program than usual this week. Last night, a bomb blast struck a concert at the Manchester Arena. As of recording, 22 people are known to have been killed and another 59 injured. It was the worst terrorist atrocity in Britain since the London bombings 12 years ago. Many children and teenagers attended the concert, and some are among the dead and wounded. Messages of support for the UK and of condemnation for the attacker, whose identity has not been announced and whose motivation remains unknown, have flooded in thick and fast from world leaders and on social media. I'm now joined by Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, to talk through how we might expect the aftermath of this attack to play out on the financial stage. Philip, hello. Let us first send our sympathies to all those involved and the families of the bereaved and say that by comparison, what happens to the markets is trivial and of little consequence. And if the attackers were trying to affect the UK economy and affect confidence, then there's absolutely no impact on the markets whatsoever. Um, there is nothing happening to the stock markets, the currency, or the bond markets to indicate that uh, investors have been affected. And that has been the pattern with many uh, recent terrorist attacks. Markets have just regarded this as unfortunate and tragic background noise, but does not affect the long-term health of the economy or indeed the long-term determination of the democracies to carry on. Indeed, as you say, the last thing on on most people's mind this morning is what all this means for the financial markets. But I, I suppose one indirect way in which it might have an impact is by having an effect on the UK election. The major parties have called off campaigning for now, but they will resume. There's an election on June the 8th. How might this play into it? I imagine it will strengthen the appeal of the Prime Minister, Theresa May, who was a Home Secretary uh, and dealt with terrorism before and will thus be seen as the voice of authority in this crisis. We have seen in the past some terrorist events that have affected elections. There was the Madrid bombings in Spain, uh, which were perceived to have an adverse effect on the popular party, the Conservative Party, and help the socialists get power. But this is unlikely to be one of those things. So on this very sad day, one thing we can at least ignore is the impact on the financial markets. Yes. Philip, thank you very much. Thank you. And now back to the programme we would have had before this terrible event. Ford's chief executive falls victim to the car maker's poor performance. What Ford has to do is it has to make huge investments and it has to do so without having the large volumes of some of the other mass market car players. The obstacles to trade deals between Africa and the EU. John Magafuli, the president of Tanzania, has even called these deals a form of colonialism. And how the weeds covering Cuba could be a blessing for the country. It's being described as the poster child of more exports from Cuba to the United States. So first, Ford's chief executive, Mark Fields, has been replaced after a period of dire performance by the carmaker. Ford's share price has fallen by almost 40% in the three years since Mr Fields took charge, 
And last week, the firm announced plans to shed 10% of its global workforce to save costs. With me to discuss the news is our industry editor, Simon Wright. Hello, Simon. Hello. So no surprise from what I've been saying, I guess, that Mr Fields has lost his job. Well, the timing was something of a surprise. No one really saw this coming. I mean, Ford has certainly underperformed. But in a sense, it's a problem with Ford as much as it is a problem with Mr Fields. Ford is part of the squeezed middle of the car industry. Car makers at the very top in the premium sector are very, very profitable. And big car companies can make profits just because they sell a lot more cars. We've got the 10 million club of Volkswagen and Toyota and GM, though they're sort of downsizing slightly. But the smaller car companies, such as Ford, which makes around 6 million cars a year, and Fiat Chrysler, have more of a problem. The car industry is going through big upheavals at the moment. For 100 years, car companies have relied on cars powered by internal combustion engines that they sold to people and pretty much forgot about. Now the car industry is being forced to go over to electric vehicles because of tough emissions regulations. Connectivity of the car to the internet, which will lead in due course to autonomous driving, also requires huge investments. And there are new players coming to the market, the Googles and Teslas and so forth. So what Ford has to do is it has to make huge investments and it has to do so without having the large volumes of some of the other mass market car players. And I suppose that's the context in which we have to see the identity of Mr Field's replacement, Jim Hackett, who has been running Ford's smart mobility business. Yes, he's an interesting choice. He spent 25 years at Steelcase, which is a furniture maker, and then he went to the University of Michigan to sort out their football team. And since then, he has been back at Ford running, as you say, their smart mobility business. And this is the future of the car business, as some see it. Instead of selling a car to a customer, they're going to be selling mobility services. But this is another big upheaval for the car industry. As I say, they're an industry that has sold things to people. Selling services to people is a completely different game, so perhaps Mr Hackett will have ideas about how to do this. The early noises he's been making have suggested that the sort of technology of the car industry is where he's going to be concentrating. You mentioned that General Motors has has recently been doing somewhat better, but also has suffered something of a downscaling. Is Ford catching up with them? Ford has been doing reasonably well. I mean, it's been making record profits, but that's partly because the American car market has been booming and is also at record levels. What GM have done slightly better, and this is what you probably campaign on, Mr Fields, is operationally they've improved. Ford hasn't really done the cost-cutting that GM has, and that's one of the things that the new boss is going to have to look at. He had a press conference today where he talked boldly about the future. He talked a lot about data. He talked a lot about technology. He talked very little about making cars, oddly enough, but I think that's the thing that Ford are going to have to put right before they really start looking ahead to the future of car making. Simon Wright, industry editor, thank you very much. So, listeners... Will the replacement of Mr Fields be enough to revive Ford's fortunes? Tell us what you think by tweeting us at Economist Radio or sending an email to radio at economist.com. Now, the scrapping of trade deals has been a hot topic of late. A much-postponed summit of the East African community in Dar es Salaam last weekend was supposed to bring good news of progress on finalising an economic partnership agreement between the EAC and the European Union. This is one of several such partnership agreements the EU has been negotiating with developing country regional groups. I'm joined now by Liam Taylor, our Africa correspondent from Kampala. Hello, Liam. Hello, Simon. Liam, did the summit indeed mark progress? Very little progress to report. The context of this summit was a long negotiated trade deal between the European Union and the East African community. Negotiations finished in 2014, but last year Tanzania, shortly before it was due to sign, backed out. 
so the summit which happened this weekend was supposed to address some of those issues and, and work out a way forward. Unfortunately, only two of the five presidents bothered turning up to the summit. The rest sent their deputies. And there wasn't really any resolution of, of what to do. Perhaps we need to row back a bit. I mean, why are these agreements necessary? I was under the impression that the EU granted very favourable access to its markets to poor countries under its Everything But Arms initiative. To go back a bit before then, the European Union used to give preferential access to countries from Africa, the Caribbean and the Pacific, most of which, of course, were its former colonies. That fell foul of World Trade Organization rules. So negotiations began in 2002 on this new breed of trade deals called economic partnership agreements. The idea of those is that they would be reciprocal trade deals, which would mean that both sides would have to open up their markets. Those deals have taken a very long time to negotiate. A deal was signed off with the Caribbean in 2008. And last year, some Southern African countries did the same. But generally, progress is stalled. It's not just in East Africa and in West Africa as well. A deal is being held up there. It's Nigeria, which is leading objections. And what's holding it up? Is it the reciprocity you mentioned that the African countries simply don't want to open their markets to Europe? Yeah, so I think there's two big issues there. The first one is that these EPAs are caught up in a tangle of existing trade arrangements which give many countries little incentive to sign. The other problem is that although the EU talks about these deals as development deals, lots of the countries in Africa especially are, are unconvinced. They're worried about their markets being flooded by European imports. They're worried that their industrial policy, things like export taxes, it will be much harder to pursue those kind of policies in future. And so all of these things are leading to a great deal of scepticism amongst many African countries. John Magafuli, the president of Tanzania, has even called these deals a form of colonialism. And does this tell us something about the state of trade agreements more generally? I mean, it seems that every week we hear of a trade agreement being renegotiated, delayed, that the whole state of global trade seems to be in something of a dark moment. There is definitely a move away from the kind of free trade rhetoric which we've seen in the past, especially presidents like Magafuli, the president of Tanzania. They're similar to certain other presidents that we might be able to think of in the way they approach these issues. Magafuli is a very outspoken president. He's often criticising the media. He likes things to be done his way. I'm sure we can think of some parallels there. Liam Taylor in Kampala, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, the weed covering 18% of Cuba, known as Marabou, has long been the scourge of its farmers. Now, though, Cuban producers are finding more lucrative uses for the pest. In January, Marabou charcoal became the first product exported to the United States in more than 50 years. Joining me from New York to explore the opportunities for Cuban exports is our correspondent, Roseanne Lake. Hello, Roseanne. Hello. First of all, what is Marabou and why is it more than just a pesky weed? Well, marabou is indeed a very pesky weed, but I guess what distinguishes it is that it's been growing in Cuba for a very long time. And the reason that it covers so much of the island leads back to a lot of Cuban history. During the special period in the 90s in Cuba, a lot of land fell into disuse and marabou is an invasive weed. So over time, it's actually destroyed a lot of agricultural production in Cuba. A lot of the land that Cuba could otherwise use to produce food, which it needs, by the way, Cuba imports about 80% of its food, it's not able to use because 
because Marabu is something like out of a fairy tale. Think like Sleeping Beauty, the, the sort of weed that invades castles, right? It's very tall, it has thorns, and as you would imagine, it's very difficult to remove manually, and Cuba has very little machinery, so there aren't many ways to get rid of it. But fortunately, other uses are being discovered for it, and that's made it a bit more interesting as of late. So what are those uses, and why does the United States want to buy it? Well, we like to barbecue in the United States, and it just so happens that Marabu can be used to make carbon, a very high-quality, non-toxic type of carbon that lights very easily, and that's already been exported by Cuba to places in the Middle East and in Europe. In the Middle East, it's very popular for shisha because it lights easily and has low toxicity. Italians love it in pizza ovens. The Spanish use it a lot in meats and for vegetables. And the U.S. is now importing it. It's being described as hopefully what will be the poster child of more exports from Cuba to the United States because Cuba is finding itself in a bit of a bind. The situation in Venezuela means that it's no longer receiving large shipments of oil that it can refine and then later sell off to other countries, which were until recently Cuba's largest source of foreign currency. With that depleted, Cuba needs to find other ways to compensate for that foreign currency that it used to generate. And Marabu, exporting Marabu, the carbon, although a modest step, is certainly one in in the right direction. But why is it the first product since... U.S. sanctions were eased to be exported. Is there really nothing else that could be sold? No, there, there certainly are. I mean, coffee could be sold, organic Cuban honey could be sold. It really just comes down to the very nebulous import regulations that the U.S. State Department sets forth. Scott Gilbert from the team at Reneo Consulting that brokered this deal found a loophole. Basically, Marabu carbon is one of the things that would raise the least amount of suspicion and would be able to serve as the first Cuban export. They're hoping that coffee will follow, that honey will follow. But basically anything that is exported from Cuba, there needs to be no state sector involvement in the production of this product. So Marabu is produced by cooperatives, which means that it ticks that box. It's okay. Organic Cuban honey is also produced by cooperatives, as is coffee. But there are some blurry lines with how the coffee beans are collected. So the coffee beans may be collected by cooperatives, but they may be separated by state employees. And so the way that it's produced gets a bit fuzzier and and it raises suspicion when it comes to the U.S. authorities. But Marabu made it through, and people are hopeful that it won't be the last product that the U.S. starts importing from Cuba. Are other industries thinking of restructuring themselves to meet U.S. import requirements? I'm not sure that they're restructuring. I mean, Marabu did get a very good price on the U.S. market. 40 tons of it were already shipped in January, and they were selling at $420 a ton, which is more than 370 380 that it's being sold to other places. So there's certainly an incentive to sell more products to the U.S. Given the geographic proximity, that would make a bit more sense. Does it have broader uses, or is it purely those niche markets of specialized ovens. What makes Marabu particularly interesting is that this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of what can be done with it. Already, one of the companies that I mentioned in the piece, Havana Energy, is looking at the prospect of turning Marabu into activated carbon, which basically means turning up the temperature through a process called thermal paralysis and bringing up Marabu to about 800 degrees Celsius. You can remove all the impurities and end up with activated carbon, which has many, many more uses than artisanal Marabu carbon, anything from water production to gold purification to alcoholic beverage distillation, which in a place like Cuba, where lots of rum is produced, would make a lot of sense. It's also very relevant to the pharmaceutical industry. And Cuba has a quite developed pharmaceutical industry, and so it would be relevant there as well. The carbon is really just the first step, and other uses for the weed are being discovered. So Marabu has a great future. Roseanne, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. That's all for this week's edition of Money Talks. If you'd like to respond to anything covered in today's programme, do get in touch via Twitter, at Economist Radio, or by emailing radio at economist.com. In London, 
This is The Economist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.